Welcome to the Urban Health and Wellbeing Program podcast. We are your hosts, Jieling Liu and Franz Gatzweiler. If you're interested in systems approaches and want to know more about the subject of urban health and well-being, in this podcast, we bring to you these insights through interviews with thought leaders and scientists in fields like urban planning, health, environment, and governance. If you like our discussion in this episode, please check out our other episodes and feel free to get in touch. You can find our contact and website information in the written introduction of this podcast. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome to our third episode of the Urban Health and Wellbeing podcast. My name is Jieling. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest of today, Professor Peter Head, who is currently the Chief Executive of the Ecological Sequestration Trust, a social enterprise he founded in 2011 to develop a systems modeling platform for city regions to deliver the Sustainable Development Goals, which now has demonstration projects around the world, including Ghana, Mongolia, Australia, Mexico, and Kenya. Among his decades-long career since the late 1980s, Peter has held many important positions. Among them, Peter was a director of Arup and headed up an integrated global planning business within the consulting group. This group included planning, policy, environmental and transport consulting, urban design and master planning, and sustainability. Peter has also been a visiting professor in systems engineering at Bristol University and a commissioner of the London Sustainable Development Commission and chair of planning and development subgroup. Peter has also been serving as the advisory board member for the United Nations Disaster Risk Reduction Office Global Assessment Report in 2019 and again in 2022. Hello, good morning, Peter. Welcome, and thank you very much for being with us today. Good morning, Jiling. Yes, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Peter, it's a fantastic life professional journey you've embarked on, which is really impressive for me. For our audience today, probably we start by introducing you in terms of where you originally come from and how did you embark on your professional journey? And by where you originally come from, I mean really like from where in terms of global geography and your earliest experience with urban environments and sustainability. Fine. Thank you, Jiling. Um, so I was born in Birmingham in the UK in 1947, uh, just after the war finished. And... Um, the situation then was uh, a very industrial Britain, still um, still polluting and using lots of coal and so on. And uh, my my parents moved around quite a lot. My father was a civil servant, so he, he moved us uh, around to where his job was. And when I was two, we moved down to London and uh, we lived in South London right through my time I was at school. And... Um, I, I remember very clearly uh, when I was going to what we call a secondary school, when I was about 11, uh, I used to go on the bus every day from uh, South 
in South London from um, near Epsom to uh, Kingston where my school was and at that time in, and that of course was 1958-59 um, London was suffering from very very severe uh, what was called smog which was a combination of coal pollution and fog and I can remember uh, going on the bus coming back one evening when the smog was really thick that the conductor on the bus had to get off and, and uh, walk in front of the bus with a torchlight so the driver could could see where the bus was going and um, I can still remember the, the taste of that awful air and um, of course that was the, the moment when the British government introduced the Clean Air Act to actually stop uh, coal being used in fireplaces and in power stations and uh, within I suppose by about 1965 maybe within about six or seven years London's air dramatically improved and the number of deaths from uh, poor air quality had dramatically reduced because there were thousands of deaths in those years caused by the air pollution. So I had a very uh, first-hand early experience of the relationship between poor um, uh, air quality uh, and, and health and how very quickly through policy a government could, could change it uh, really, really quickly. So I did have some first-hand experience of that, of that type of problem, which of course we'll come back to later on, I think. Right. The London smog, obviously, it's uh, such an iconic and important event for the global environmental agenda and the sustainability agenda. It served very much as the beginning of it, and, and I'm sure that it has had a leading impact on how you would later on choose your career in uh, civil engineering and planning, right? Yes, it did. And in fact, uh, the other influence in my life was uh, my parents were very keen gardeners. We had a very small little garden, but my parents were very keen. And I, I used to spend a lot of time helping them in the garden. And as you can see from the picture behind me, it's still a, still a passion. And the image behind me is, is actually uh, the Sustainable Development Goal logo created from flowers from my current garden. And those are flowers I picked to make a, a logo on the grass, which I then photographed from a ladder. So um, I, still, I still love flowers and I love gardening. Uh, it's been all through my life, really, um, a, a love of nature and a love of the natural world, as well as an understanding of, uh, of issues of pollution. So the reason I got into engineering, I think, by my father's family side goes all the way through engineering and mechanical engineering uh, history. Um, I track my, my heritage and uh, my grandfather uh, was an engineer at the ga gas turbine works in Rugby and, and his father was uh, uh, I think a chain maker in, in the northeast of England. So I have a, a long family history of engineering and practical stuff which I obviously inherited. And so um, when I went to university, I was very keen to study engineering and I was lucky enough to get a place at Imperial College in London. And Imperial College has played a very big part in my whole life all through my career, as I'll explain briefly later on. Um, and um, uh, when I went to Imperial College, I was there for three years doing a civil engineering degree and left. Uh, and I was very keen on being a bridge engineer. So. Um, because bridges were very romantic and very exciting, particularly big ones. At that time, which was now, we're in 1969, 
The UK was building very large steel bridges, um, suspension bridges and box, what are called box girder bridges. But the extraordinary thing that happened to me very soon uh, in my career was that the company I was working for, Freeman Fox, had some problems with their bridges and a couple of them collapsed. And I was thrown into uh, the middle of a big research program to find out why and then to help the construction of bridges that were currently being built using the same technology to make sure they wouldn't collapse. So at the age of 23, I was thrown into the responsibility of interpreting research and applying it in practice directly on the ground uh, with safety and public safety and, and worker safety very much involved. So I got a very first-hand experience at a very young age of how you turn uh, research into practical application which um, having learned the policy side of it, I was then learning the practical side of it as to how you actually did that. And I think that was a very influential period in my life, really, to actually have personal responsibility and to be able to do that. Uh, and that, that sort of led me to have a career where I was always at the cutting edge of innovation um, and always trying to apply research and apply it in practice, which, uh, which I think we'll come on to in relation to cities. Yes, that's for sure. And I imagine that uh, through the lens and experience of bridge building, you also trained or embodied a long-term thinking in terms of how it will serve people in a way that is not only for their convenience of life, but also for their safety and also for how the bridge as an element of urban infrastructure can serve for our greater purposes of urban sustainability. Yes, and the, the really important aspect of that is actually how do you actually deliver it? Because it's fine in theory, but how in practice do you, do you actually deliver it? So I was very fortunate to actually be part of a winning team to win the project of, of studying the planning of a new bridge across the River Severn in the UK called the Second Severn Crossing. Uh, this was a bridge that was required to um, be put alongside an existing bridge built around the, the time that I moved into engineering and, and built by the company that I referred to. Um, was It was in trouble because um, when traffic drove across it and it was windy, uh, they had to close it to high-sided vehicles. And also the, the deck was requiring a lot of maintenance. So they needed a new bridge uh, or a tunnel across the estuary to uh, allow traffic to get between England and, and Wales. And it was very important for the Welsh economy that this was successful. But that site was also uh, a UN-designated Ramsar site, special scientific interest site. So it was a very, very sensitive location for construction. So I was responsible for the planning and delivery of, of the solution to that, which turned out to be a bridge. And uh, I worked on it all the way through from 1984 to 1997 when it was opened. And uh, the thing that we particularly developed was what, what I call a performance-based specification, where the competing teams had to deliver performance, long-term performance for the project as a privately financed project, not just build a bridge. So it was all about the safety of crossing in all weathers. It was the safety of shipping sailing underneath. It was the performance of the ecology. Uh, could the ecology, if it was affected, bounce back and be seen to bounce back? Um, could we minimize the impact during construction on birds, uh, migrating birds and birds nesting and fish and so on? 
So all of that was part of a performance specification, which in 1988-89, when European legislation on, on the environment was still not fully formed, it was a very, very important leading example of how you can do things successfully. And, and it is very successful and it works and it's never closed due to high winds and uh, ships sail safely underneath and the ecology and the environment did bounce back. And that was all because we set it up to be a performance-based project. And that made me realize in my life that actually it is possible uh, using finance to actually deliver transformational change as long as you stick very rigorously to a well-defined evidence-based performance approach, which um, is, is something that um, I will finish with probably because it's still an area I'm very much working in. Um, but, al but also it made me realize that bridges were not all about engineering in the end. They were about planning, they were about multidisciplinary teams working together, and they were all about building an economy. So the Welsh economy, uh, as the bridge was built, um, dramatically improved in South Wales because of the reliable connection. And there was a real boom in South Wales as a result of building the bridge. And the Millennium Stadium was built and all sorts of other things happened. So, um, so I, I, I obviously learned a connection between infrastructure and quality of life. Uh, I once went to a dinner with some friends and there was someone at the table I didn't know and they didn't know me and they said, uh, you know this new bridge that they've just built across the Seven Estuary has changed my life completely. It's so wonderful now to be able to cross the bridge and reliably and uh, to see my family and so on. They said it's really changed my life. Uh, it's wonderful to hear that. <laughs> That's really wonderful to hear that. And I think that uh, your contribution really stood out this performance-based indicators or assessment or this monitoring mechanism tied to evidence and accountability really make sure that the bridge would function over time and that there will be, if any problems, there will be maintenance to make sure that it functions in the long term. So that's wonderful. And I, I assume that experience also served to your uh, being appointed by the London Sustainable Development Commission in 2002 as a commissioner? Yes, it did. In fact, um, the, the sequence of events was that I was first appointed as chair of the London First Sustainability Unit and sustainable development was becoming quite important in the UK. We had a Labour government, John Prescott was pushing sustainable development very strongly at a regional level. And London first wanted to see if London could actually pick, pick up on that agenda. So I chaired the sustainability unit, mostly of businesses. And uh, three of us um, who were in that unit, one of them was a person called uh, Dr. Robin Stott, who uh, had a very, very strong influence on me in terms of my understanding of urban health issues. Robin had, had written um, Sustainable Health for the Schumacher Institute, uh, just before that and had done a lot of uh, analysis and research on on the issues that affect health in cities and also a person called David Fell who is an economist who was also passionate about the sustainability and, and economics and the three of us were, were hand-picked by the Mayor's office to join the, the London Sustainable Development Commission when it was set up after Mayor Livingstone won the election and set up the Greater London Authority 
So we were selected and I still remember the very first meeting when we went with about uh, 16, 17 other people from all walk, walks of life. He came into the room and said to us, you're the experts in all of this. I, I know nothing about it really, but I know I want to make a difference. So whatever you recommend, I will do my best to implement it. And that was an extraordinary opportunity for us to see if we could really help him change London from what was a very dysfunctional city that hadn't had a local authority for years into a world-leading sustainable city. And that's what we set out to try and help him do. And, and by 2012, when the Olympics were on, we'd actually helped him uh, embed sustainable development thinking into the Olympic bid. Uh, and uh, and uh, I was very excited when we won, of course. I think at the stage of getting to 2012, uh, from 2002, in just 10 years, London was completely transformed from, from a dysfunctional city to a very, a very impressive, sustainable city. The water had been cleaned up, the air was better. The only problem we didn't solve was the problem of very high uh, housing costs. Uh, and uh, that still is an ongoing problem, but many other problems were improved. Education was dramatically improved. Uh, the water quality of the Thames was dramatically improved. Um, uh, the air quality and so on, biodiversity went up. A whole lot of things were improved. So it was an amazing experience to be part of a multidisciplinary team, setting a framework and embedding it into policy and practice to see it actually working in practice. And um, it was my role there that led to me being uh, sort of headhunted by Arab to join, uh, to lead their planning business because they were so impressed by what I was doing with, with, right. the, with the mayor of London. So with the mayor of London and this sustainable development commission that you participated and supported throughout this period, obviously it's very impressive to to see all the improvement in the environment. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about uh, the approach that you and, um, and the team had in terms of mapping out London's sustainable development problems. What was the way of coordination with respective stakeholders? And also um, if there were any priority areas picked, so how was the problems tackled one by one? Yes, so, so basically the, the mayor's office, of course, had teams who were developing a London plan, developing different strategies for transport and, uh, and energy and, and all education and everything. So there was a very big technical team working in London. So what we decided to do was to create a holistic framework which would enable them to look at all of those different aspects within a systems frame uh, and at that stage I still wasn't um, a systems expert but I, I helped them uh, with the others to create a holistic framework which actually focused on change. It didn't set the objectives for the city in the future. It said let's actually look at incremental change so that communities were more involved in the process of change that the transport and energy and other other aspects were started to talk to each other so actually when you change one it helped to improve another rather than went in the opposite direction so so we actually built a framework for change rather than the framework of objectives and i think that was the reason it was successful because actually people could monitor whether that change was happening each year from the indicators that we provided against basically economics social and environmental improvements and the change process to deliver them. 
if I can give you a very simple example of how powerful that was. We, we sat around a table one day in London and said, we've got this framework. How do we get the community to understand it and use it? And we said, well, actually, there's probably a lot of people out there already trying to change their neighbourhood, trying to stop plastic bags being used or plant a little garden somewhere. Uh, why don't we try and um, help them to really scale up what they're doing and give them the benefit of the mayor's support? So we had a little competition and we called it London Leaders and we asked people to submit ideas and we chose, a, I think, about 10 uh, London leaders and gave them publicity in, and gave them, introduced them to the mayor. And those 10 were chosen across the spectrum of the framework uh, so that they would start deliver, delivering together a more holistic outcome. And they all started to work together, of course, supporting each other. Uh, there wasn't any money involved, it was simply giving them uh, support and publicity. And um, after the f first year, we got another 10 the next year. And by the time we got 50 or 60 of those people doing their programs, uh, they were spread all across the different boroughs of London. So um, we had about 50 uh, community programs operating in every borough of London on different subjects, food growing, energy retrofit, solar energy, food growing and so on and and that really lifted London from the bottom up and that all came from just sitting around the table one day and saying we've got a framework how do we get people to use it and it was amazingly effective. That's really impressive I imagine that when these citizens when they were nominated as leaders they become so motivated to lead and be role model for the community also. No? Another thing we did was we we talked to people in the National Health Service about the health system in London and at that time there were a lot of privately financed initiatives moving forward for new hospitals and so we talked to them about, about using uh, the same sort of framework idea to create something that eventually got called sustainable health and a performance-based delivery of, of sustainable health outcomes uh, which of course I'd learned before. Uh, was then encouraged through the National Health Service and Robin Stott and I were very much involved in that too. So we did try and bring these ideas to all these different areas including of course the London Olympics bid uh, which also enabled us to demonstrate some really profound change as well. Mm -hmm. So how did this London sustainable development agenda feed into or was developed in relation to the United Nations Sustainable Development Agenda? Yes, well it, it really, um, that sort of evolved in the period up to 2015 because in about 2012 the United Nations turned their minds to what was going to replace the Millennium Development Goals and uh, they needed to set in train a process for developing new goals for 2030 and uh, they appointed Jeffrey Sachs in America at um, Columbia University Earth Center to actually set up a system of uh, getting people involved in writing sustainable development goals and I was uh, recruited because of the work that I've been doing and my experience to join a team who were looking at cities and uh, it was quite anarchic at that time to think about cities being involved in a sustainable development goal because people said, you know, cities cover everything. You you can't have a goal for cities. Uh, anyway, I worked very closely with that team, 
and uh, we, we met um, all over the world and we gradually moved forward and we lobbied to have a sustainable development goal for cities um, which would be linked to the health and, and other goals and um, uh, eventually through force of argument we won out and the, the main reason we won out was because if there wasn't a sustainable development goal for cities there wouldn't have been a goal for, for, for housing um, development there wouldn't have been a goal for um, protecting uh, heritage and, and uh, both natural and human heritage structures in cities. So there were gaps in the other goals being developed that eventually enabled it to be secured. So, so I was uh, one of the architects of Sustainable Development Goal 11 for cities and we had to design the, the targets and the outcomes. And so I got deeply involved in the whole process of delivering a set of Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, which could then be used uh, going forward. And there are lots of other things happening at the same time, but that was very much uh, part of my journey. So that's uh, really fascinating. And also it's an honor to meet the person who actually was behind the design of the UNSDGs for me. Well, yeah, I was one of a team uh, of about so probably about 20 people who worked on a particular goal. And, and it's very much research and evidence-based, so we had to, you know, there were a lot of academics involved in that. Um, but I was very fortunate to be part of that and to really understand how it all came about and to have some influence. But I think the area I was able to influence was probably the idea of resilience and, and systems, because by that time I'd become a, a visiting professor at, um, at Bristol University. And, and the reason that happened was that after I joined Arup, I got involved in being the director of designing the new ecological cities in China in 2004. The Chinese wanted a lot of publicity about what we were doing, so I became really quite ridiculously well known uh, for that work. Because of that, the uh, Institution of Civil Engineers asked me to give the annual Brunel lecture on a subject of my choosing. And because I was beginning to understand China's journey towards the ecological civilization, I suggested I write a paper on the role of engineers in delivering the ecological future for the world and a deeply researched paper on uh, how to do that, how to reduce carbon emissions and uh, protect the environment and reduce ecological footprint. Uh, and I gave that presentation all over the world uh, in about, I think, 26 countries all over the world and got lots of feedback on it. So I had a huge amount of knowledge and feedback on how the world was thinking uh, and all of that in parallel with, um, with the work on the Sustainable Development Goals and the practical work in China on cities, on ecological cities and how they would work and what the role of nature-based solutions was and how that affected human health. Uh, and how health improvement of health could be an economic argument for uh, nature-based solutions and more walking and cycling and more exercise and better nutrition and all of those things which came out of originally came out of our thinking in London. Right. Obviously EcoCity has been in China it's a very mainstream development for cities. Every city wanted to have a label and some form of design uh, or demonstration in their jurisdiction for um, what's considered eco, sustainable, and that would really reflect the environmental agenda, ecological civilization. In which cities specifically was there any demonstration projects? And in different cities, was there different areas focused 
or different details tailored to the different contextual specificities of each city? Yes, there were. Uh, we worked on quite a number of them. We were only doing the planning, we weren't doing the implementation. Um, because obviously China would do that itself, but it was using an, in, an international expert consultancy to really help with the planning ideas and planning systems. And uh, the first one we worked on was the Dongtang Eco City on Chongming Island, um, which wasn't quite built as we planned it, but it is a place where uh, an ecological urban development has actually been realised subsequently, not quite in the way we imagined. But that was very much about you know, managing water effectively, uh, growing food efficiently, managing waste so to not pollute the area because it's an island in the sea, and look after bird, bird habitats which might be threatened. So that had its own characteristics. We worked on the Wangzhuang eco-city, which was in a place called Langfang, which is to the, um, to the east of uh, Beijing. And yes. um, a lot of that was about cultural heritage and about food, food growing and about new modern industries coming in and how you would host those modern industries without too much pollution and allowing uh, sustainable transport between the new development centres. That project was interesting because it made us realise that actually the development model that, that Holland has where you've got urban centres which aren't that big connected by very good walking, cycling and uh, electric transport systems uh, is a very sustainable system and still allowing room for agriculture between the urban centres. And we realised that actually um, a lot of Chinese cities are the same scale as the whole of Holland in terms yeah. of their size. So Holland is a really interesting example of a model. Uh, the only bit that, that is, doesn't work is the, is the very high carbon content and the very high agricultural productivity which is remarkable but rather difficult to manage without lots of energy. But anyway it made us realise that the Dutch model was actually quite an interesting one for China. Yeah so now that we're talking about European urbanization characteristics and China's characteristics I would say that in my impression the Chinese cities always stand out with this uh, feature of uh, focusing on a city centre versus that uh, in European cities, surely there often would be one city centre, but often there are also multiple kind of sub-centres in a larger metropolitan area. So how do you view these differences and how do you find a way to coordinate or work with the differences on these characteristics and uh, make sure that the kind of um, design would bring out the best result in terms of sustainability? Yeah, I think it's a lot of hard work, a lot of modelling and a lot of um, evidence-based outcomes. China's very keen on that. And when we were able to demonstrate that this type of multi-centred approach with very good interconnections, with specialisms in different nodes, um, surrounded by food and production and, and other aspects, uh, very much tuned into Chinese culture. Because as you know, Chinese cities uh, still maintain a ring of food production around them. So if a city in China expands, they still really protect uh, arable land and food production land uh, around the edge so that um, food can still be supplied locally, or certainly greens and uh, everyday type vegetables. So there is a culture in, in China of that. So in our eco-cities, we're, we're always trying to show that the city could grow as much food within the city as the land it was going to be built on could have produced in the first instant. And that was one of the criteria we used. 
so that there could be uh, way, ways to do that. And, and therefore, the multi-centred approach became something that they were very interested in. That's really plausible to hear. I agree with you on the emphasis on agricultural land around cities. On the front of China's urbanization and sustainability, there's a lot uh, that we uh, we can extend to. But let's come back to talk more about your more recent activities. Yeah, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention about health, um, because when you're doing city developments, you know one can really focus on clean air and water and soil and uh, yeah. and um, and people getting exercise and you know leisure activities. But what we don't tend to focus on is um, uh, mental health and well-being within, within families and communities. And one of the things on my journey that um, I've realised in, in a big way that we really do have to focus on on mental health and well-being, particularly within families and within communities as well. And this is something which I think is not as well developed within, within uh, the thinking and the planning. And I can give you a couple of examples. Um, one of the things we developed um, with the Danish Cultural Institute with something called Culture Futures, which was a way of saying, let's take the ecological civilization journey and discuss it with communities around the world to actually get them involved in thinking about it. And we did that through the COP uh, events that were held every year. And we had one event in Durban in 2011, uh, COP17, I think it was, where we held an event which was attended by the COP people. It was also attended by uh, Mahatma Gandhi's granddaughter and many other people who are interested in sustainability. And we invited communities to come along. And we created a very trusting and very um, deeply thoughtful environment during the day. And it enabled one woman to suddenly open up about how awful her life was because of domestic violence and the violence that men uh, imposed on women. And um, it was a very, very moving moment because uh, it made us realise that, you know, if we can open up the discussion in a, in a completely open way, we can begin to realise that there are these big problems in the world of male-dominated uh, societies where, where women are treated very badly. As part of a, a health and wellbeing agenda, it's something that really needs to be addressed. The second example is an extraordinary story that I heard more recently through the Global Leadership Academy, which uh, I've been invited to join um, more recently. We held a, a leadership meeting in a couple of years ago, and one wonderful woman who came was a lady called Helen Tanyinga from Eastern Uganda. And she came along and explained her journey. She actually created a new organization called the Rape Hurts Foundation. And she had been raped as a teenager in her village in uh, Uganda because she had to walk for water every evening after school, about uh, two kilometers uh, there and back in the dark. And uh, she, she was obviously very vulnerable and she was raped uh, one day. And she realized that this was a common problem in Africa where, where women had to go and walk long distances for water uh, in the evenings. And so she decided to do something about it. So what she did was she uh, got funding to actually build a water tower in her village to supply water locally, but also build solar panels to power uh, uh, solar lighting along the roads and paths. And uh, once that had been done, there were no more teenage pregnancies in the village uh, at all. 
whereas there were thousands and thousands in surrounding areas that didn't do that. So by, by introducing sustainable water supply and solar energy systems, she managed to uh, overturn this, this horrendous problem and uh, the, the village really has thrived subsequently as a result of that, that type of thinking. So I think there is a very interesting connection between uh, new technologies and decentralised systems and people's safety and health and well-being, uh, which are being demonstrated in very small and profound ways around the world. And it's something we need to take account of. We need to really create a more holistic way of looking at the world than we perhaps do at the moment. Right. Uh, well, thank you for sharing these two actually very moving examples of women and the violence or the challenges they face in, a, like you said, a male-dominant society. And maybe we can frame it also as a male-dominated development context. So in your view, what can professionals like us, sustainable development professionals, planning professionals, can do in these challenges in order to improve the urban environment and urban health, besides providing them the stage to share their story? Yeah. So, yeah, one of the more recent developments, uh, we, we talked a bit about the, uh, the setting up of my charity, which I did in 2011, and I was chief executive of the charity until recently, but actually I've now stepped down. I'm no longer chief executive, and... Uh, Stephen Parsons taken over uh, and uh, I now chair the trustees and that's given me the opportunity to explore some new areas and one of them is a new organisation called Equity for Humanity and what that is doing is, um, is bringing together expertise in, in financing systems and impact financing systems and the systems of design and uh, development um, planning and retrofit of communities. Uh, using decentralised these the sort of systems I've just been talking about, uh, and so what we're doing is we're creating a um, an enabling environment that local people can use to actually attract capital into entrepreneurship, into regenerative development, where the benefits can be seen by the community, using smaller scale infrastructure of the kind I've just mentioned. And uh, so that's my, my current preoccupation, if you like, is to try and help bring all that together. So all of the expertise that we developed in the charity for modelling urban planning and uh, infrastructure in a holistic systems way, combined with systems of uh, financing. So maybe it will be possible in the future, for example, to deploy pension funds uh, locally into these transformative solutions because there is the evidence from the system's modelling and data to give the confidence to pension funds that the long-term benefits are there in terms of uh, revenues accruing to the whole of society, including the government, so they get more tax revenues and uh, people improve health and well-being. So we're currently working on trying to get this mobilised in Kenya, in the uh, city of Kisumu, on Lake Victoria. So this has always been a bit of a dream of mine, is to really connect up finance properly into this process so that actually local people can, can drive it for themselves using these uh, data-driven systems and take advantage of open data, take advantage of the African Data Cube and open satellite data and other things and bring it into decision-making for themselves in a more systems way. And that's the current approach. 
but it, it's very much what we call an approach which looks at human and ecological health as a holistic system. That really sounds like a wonderful approach, and I think it would be really wonderful if the potential of the pension funds could be activated to support, like you said, a very holistic and community-oriented um, transition. So I wonder, because the kind of readings I have had informed me a context that in Africa, obviously it is an emerging market for many economic activities and has a great potential. But since a lot of the work that you do is based on evidence and based on data and also involving communities to inform the analysis that you do in order to come up with good arguments or good reasons to activate financial resources. So the challenge, as far as I'm seeing it, is the data piece, access to technology, technological literacy, or the availability of people and time and capability to really to an ideal degree of participation in this holistic process. Yeah, yes, I, I agree. But actually, I think the, that Africa is a great place to do this because uh, Africans have shown themselves to be very adaptable to pick up this technology and use it. So in Kenya, for example, you know, most transactions now happen through phones. And um, so phones are now the transaction media rather than money being handed over. Uh, and um, that seems to be, have been adopted far more widely in Kenya than almost any other country. Uh, so people are used to trading, you know, using their, their phones. And as an example, I think agroforestry is a very important way to improve the planet and improve food supply. And it's not that well understood. But in Kenya, for example, there's a charity supporting agroforestry development. And what happens there is that often women get involved in planting the trees and hedges within their small holdings. They plant f fruit trees, for example, to get nuts as well as getting uh, vegetables and other things from the land. And, and when they plant the trees, there's an app that they can go onto and they can take a photograph of, the, of what they planted. And they, they get paid directly for the carbon sequestration benefits that that brings. And it gets paid over their phone directly into their account. And so the woman actually receives the money. And that is happening in Kenya very successfully. So actually, there are a lot of ways this works. I mean, another example is microinsurance, where there is microinsurance for farmers, where they can get a microinsurance for a cow so that um, if there's a flood and the cow needs to be rescued, they can phone up the uh, microinsurer once they've paid their $1 a year or whatever it is, And the microinsurer will, will actually pay for mobilizing people to come and rescue the cow from the flood. And a similar microinsurance for health in cities as well, where people get, uh, get health screening through microinsurance. So, uh, and all that happens over phones. So actually, I think we are developing some very different ways of, of actually moving forward, which I think are very encouraging and very, very exciting. And with renewable energy and, uh, and biodigestion of waste and for making compost and so on, you know, there's a lot of opportunities once you get that type of technology into play to actually deploy it really quickly at scale. Well, that sounds wonderful. I'm very happy to hear these two examples, the agroforestry about planting trees and then farmers getting directly paid and then also the microinsurance example of um, ensuring a cow's safety.
I very much appreciate the effort being distributed at this level. So very individual, micro, and also really helping those who are most in need or those who often have more challenges than others in accessing resources. Yeah, I've always been very concerned throughout my life, really. It's the poorest that actually suffer with climate change. And the capitalist model is making that worse because the capitalist model of GDP growth is basically financing rich people to get richer and isn't really supporting poor people to live a better life. And that's got to change. And I, I think the only way it can change is this rather more bottom-up or yeah. middle-to-bottom-up approach where money can be deployed in an efficient and systems way where the transaction costs are much lower, you know, like the $1 for the cow, where the transaction costs are so low that that becomes possible. Um, but that's got to be deployed at scale for that to work. Right. It, it, it's no good if it's done one cow at a time. It's got to be a system that, that happens across communities right across a country. But once you get it to scale, the transaction costs are so low that it, everything can be made to work. And that is a very different model from the GDP growth model. Mm -hmm. Now, it's hard to get by any conversations and finishing a conversation without mentioning the pandemic. Perhaps we can use this as a concluding remark. Obviously, the pandemic has given every individual and every organization a chance to rethink about the previous practices and uh, challenges and also opportunities forward. So how do you view the pandemic as challenges and also opportunities to move forward using the systems approach to address the just transition for better sustainability? Yeah, thanks. So um, actually, when the pandemic struck, um, a group of us got together and, and created a program called Pivot Projects, which actually okay. has been running now for 120 weeks. And we all meet every week and we have about 20 work streams looking at the impact of COVID and the way the world's responding to it and what the opportunities and threats are from it. So we've got a lot of data and information and we're working with uh, communities around the world on projects. You know, we're working with communities in Nepal, in the Congo, in, in America, in India and in Australia. It's really very interesting. And the big conclusions, one, one is that public sector governments, local and national governments around the world, have got no money because they spent so much on dealing with COVID. They haven't got any money to spend on sustainable development. So the recovery process has got to be done very efficiently and it's got to use a lot more private capital than we would have expected. So that's one of the first big conclusions, which is partly why Equity for Humanity is, is trying to do what it's doing. The second conclusion is that people, as you say, Jiling, have decided that uh, the previous life was not really the right way to go. So there is a huge understanding now, I think, uh, that different forms of transport, uh, not rushing off on, on expensive holidays all the time, huge amount of travelling that people were doing was, was not very uh, good for their health and well-being. And also the idea of retrofitting and working on changing neighbourhoods uh, because a lot of people have been doing that in the pandemic. It's something that's very rewarding and very uh, enjoyable for people. Um, yeah. So so working from home and working on more community projects is something I think is going to become much more normal as a result. But I think one of the big ones is, is the idea of regenerative development. I think is something that everyone is now talking about and looking at resilience. We have to recognise that the COVID 
pandemic is, is happening at the same time as a massive increase of risk from climate change. So I think the two things have now absorbed together into a need for, for, for dramatic transformational change. So I think the, the two of them have now joined up to some extent as being the big threats that need to be dealt with. Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, and in fact, that I think in a way the pandemic was good in terms of uh, serving a parallel thinking opportunity for many individual and, and organizations on the risks of climate change and, and how to go about it in this window of opportunity of recovery. I think it's a very good example in China um, of, of how suddenly the world looks different because you know China's done this amazing job of investing over a trillion dollars in high-speed trains between the cities. So people can now live a life in China completely different from before, where they can travel really at relatively low cost to any city in China. Uh, but yes. suddenly, of course, uh, you can't because of the pandemic. And therefore, there's a huge debt problem with the railway system because people are not being allowed to travel because of the pandemic. So there's a very, you know, that sort of sudden realization that rushing headlong into fast travel between cities is not necessarily <laughs> the right answer for the future. It, it's created quite a, quite a strange feeling, I think, in China. <laughs> yes, yes, that is very true. Um, but let's hope that, you know, the energy that people used to be able to spend on the road are now reserved and hopefully be able to contribute to their alternative way of life, for example, you know, focusing more on the local and the community, like you suggested, perhaps also serve for personal reflections on also interpersonal relationships and uh, what is considered really for them as the ideal condition of health, ideal condition of development and ideal consideration of home and community. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and hopefully governments will give pe people the opportunity to do that. That's the really important thing, that people are empowered to pursue those things. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Peter, thank you very much for this very insightful and uh, very inspiring conversation. Thank you, Jiling. Thanks very much for the opportunity. It's lovely to talk to you again. We hope you have enjoyed our conversation. The background music of this podcast is called Magic Forest, created and shared generously by musician Mike Huber under the Creative Commons license. If you want to join the conversation, add examples of systems approaches to urban health and well-being, or be part of the network, contact us. Again, you can write us an email or visit our website, which are available in the written introduction of this podcast. Please also follow us on Apple Podcasts SoundCloud or Spotify. Until next time, stay healthy and well.